Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And really excited about our guest today. I guess the best way to say it is that Hollywood movies lie to us, or the traditional Hollywood movies lie to us. We usually have the you know struggle at the beginning, the hero's journey, and then at the end, everything's P.T. Keen. You've covered and tackled all your demons, and life is fantastic. You ride off to the sunset. And our guest today didn't have that kind of linear life, so she's going to share a safety net success story and just give you some insight into what she's been going through. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome the speaker, author, and advocate, Pamela Covington. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show today, Hamza and David. Appreciate it. Thank you. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Again? Yeah, I, I want to go, let's do a little bit of the Hollywood because you know, for most people, um, I think that's how we started the intrinsic motivation of, oh, there's a hardship and just keep your chin up and then you'll you'll ride off into the atmosphere of bliss and in many cases many people interpret that as being linear and in your case you didn't have that scenario so I'd like to talk a little bit about um, how you got to become a radio announcer or a newspaper reporter um, and then go from there okay uh, let's see the radio announcing I just naturally came from my own personal love of music, and I like so many different genres of music that it afforded me the opportunity to be able to spin music in a couple different radio station formats. And that was something that I did primarily in Savannah, Georgia, uh, where in my story, A Day at the Fair, the story actually begins. My experience as a journalist came about as my means for pulling myself out of poverty. So that came a little later, uh, several years later. And it began, ironically, with my community college education. I was enrolled in a class and had a professor tell me in class one day, Pamela, you be sure and come and see me when this session is over. And because I had so much domestic turmoil going on uh, from a financial perspective, having gone from living a very comfortable middle-class lifestyle and finding myself, I mean, plunged into ugly, unimaginable poverty, I thought that for sure I had done something wrong. Maybe I hadn't performed as well as he knew I could or that the last paper I turned in must have really been bad. Well, contrarily, when I met him in his office, he turned to me with that same paper in his hand, mind you, and says, Pamela, you have a few weak spots here and there, he says, but really, he says, overall, this is great, he said to me. He said, you can turn words into dollars. Now, mind you, I am living in the worst unimaginable condition possible. I'm in an apartment that I didn't have a, I want to make sure I'm not exaggerating now, I didn't have a refrigerator for maybe three or four months, and I didn't have a stove for eight months. There's no heat, there's no air conditioning, there's a window in the front and a window in the back. And on a good day, my children and I were cooking Vienna sausage and grits on a kerosene heater. So I'm living in these god-awful conditions, and this professor just told me I could turn words into dollars. And I was just, I was just floored. I, I, I just never thought much of my ability to think of something and instantaneously be able to find out perfect verbiage to express myself. And so here I am living on public assistance in this box of roaches, to be quite frankly, and somebody just told me that I could turn words into dollars. And that professor continued to guide me through my years at the community college, and one of those 
uh, with, uh, entail an internship at a magazine. And this is 1986, mind you, when we didn't have the uh, so accessible access to electronics. Um, I started computing when the Apples first came out, and they didn't have hard drives. So hmm. that's an era technologically that this all took place. Well, um, I did an internship at a city lifestyle magazine through the college, and one day a brand-new newspaper called USA Today is calling all over the city, the daily papers and other magazines, trying to find someone to go and cover a story. Well, the editor at the magazine, because everyone on staff was on deadline, turned to me and said, Pamela, I think you should take that. Well, I'm scared. I'm going to tell you, this was, the story was in a place called St. Mary's, Georgia, um, a beautiful little charming, predominantly white city along the coastline. And the topic was the advent of the Trident Submarine Program. At that time, then-President Reagan had signed off on funding of that big project in St. Mary's, and the newspaper wanted someone to go cover it. I was knocking at my knees. I was coming up with every excuse possible. But, 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 I don't have press credentials and nobody's going to believe me. I mean, this is at a time where you could count on one hand the number of black journalists there were. And it turns out I made the trip up from Jacksonville, Florida to St. Mary's, Georgia, and they were so nice to me. They helped me in every way possible, including after I had interviewed several individuals in the town in regards to the impact that the submarine expansion program would have on the area, I was even invited to come back and do the telephone dictation because that's what we had then. And lo and behold, the next morning, that same newspaper machine that I walked by every morning on my way to class and thought nothing of, I stopped at it, took two of my precious quarters that I probably saved from food stamps and put them in there and pulled that paper out and tore it to the section of that paper where I saw my name in print for the very first time. Mm -hmm. Initially, I was worried, what if my caseworker sees this? And I said to myself, you know, if she sees it, she's going to look at it and say, oh, no, it can't be that Pamela. She's just another welfare mother. And so once I had an article published in a national newspaper, it was easy to convince other newspapers and magazines locally to let me write. And that's how my journalism career jumped off. Wow. Wow. Yes, yeah, that's a great story. I, I need you'd be in. We'd be in for a treat just hearing some of it. Um, I think David had something he wanted to add. No, no, I just was saying the same thing that you were. Wow, that's a that's a tremendous story. Tremendous story. Well, you said you said two things, Pamela, that really stood out. Um, you were in a middle class lifestyle, and then you something happened where you were no longer in that. So you had to learn some humbling things. And then the second part that stood out for me was the what if the caseworker sees it? And so uh, it made me think of if you hadn't had that middle life lifestyle before, then you would have had this um, internal belief that you were only allowed a certain station of your life. And so that kind of crept in a little bit of, oh, you've had some success with the USA Today what you were concerned about your caseworker seeing that. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Yes. Um, Well, you know, because there's always implications when you're on public assistance. You're not allowed to have any more income than they have allocated you. In this instance, that total income was a whopping $152 for myself and my two children our box of roaches was $170 a month. 
So every first of the month, I was already functioning at a deficit and still had to find some means to provide other things. I had to pay a water and a sewer bill. My, I had a baby. We had to have diapers. I had my personal needs as a female. And, and, and now if she saw that article, I could probably have gotten called on the carpet for it because there would surely there was going to be money involved in me having written that. And you bet there was. I think the actual portion of the story that they used might have totaled somewhere between 75 and 85 words. And we're talking 1986. I was paid $150 for that. That is the same amount as my welfare check. So if they would have found that out, no doubt I would have been left with $2 in the long run. Wow. And it made me think of 2018 because the, the latest news, it was either yesterday or Friday, they were talking about, the newspapers were talking about uh, Wesley Snipes, and he's back in the news again, uh, potentially owing multiple millions of dollars because he hasn't been showing um, that he wasn't in that, like you were saying, they want you to stay in a certain lifestyle to get uh, whatever they're sending you, but they want you to stay there and not make any changes in your life or, you know, it seems like um, servitude. Well, I I considered it to be uh, the way they handle your additional income situation to be Punishment. I mean, after I was in the college for a while and able to demonstrate academic excellence, I was provided a scholarship. When it was time to recertify and I was asked, had there been any changes to my household income, I did the right thing and I reported it. I reported the money I had received. And as a result of that, my food stamps were reduced to $25. So I was livid. I remember stomping down the halls at college and just ranting because I thought that's what that system was there for, for me to use as I found my way to getting back on my feet. And for me, education was that way, yet I was being punished for it because I got a scholarship for demonstrating academic excellence. Right. Yeah. So, and I love it. And I love before we had gotten on, um, our first, one of our first podcasts was about Godwinks and that there's no accidents and we were looking at all the synchronicity in our lives. And yeah. before you and I had gotten live on the, on the call, we were talking about the book, Journey of Souls by Michael Newton, and in the book, he uh, most people are familiar about past life regression, but in Journey of Souls, he talks about life between life uh, regression. So you're actually looking at your past lives, uh, interpreting that, and using that information to determine what your next phase of incarnation is going to be. And so as you were talking, it made me think of that one professor that saw that light in you even when you didn't. And then there was an opportunity where he told you that and you could have self-sabotaged like, oh, I'm not going to listen to him at all, but something drove you to do this USA Today article. Yes. And, you know, in terms of past lives, just from the top of my mind, I must have been a scribe. I am so obsessed with all forms of communication, writing, oral speaking, and anything that has to do with disseminating or handling information. And I know that, you know, back in those days in the time of scribes, those persons were entrusted with those skills. They were the recorders and what have you. And I have so many books that I'll tell you that when I do decide to move, no one will help me move unless I pay them. (laughs) (laughs) I have a closet that was a clothing closet that I put shelves on all three sides and turned it into a book room from floor to ceiling. (laughs) 
and then mm-hmm. there are stacks throughout my home. But you see, that is one of the reasons why I also try to promote literacy at every turn I get because I'm totally aware that there are strong correlations between poverty and those who lack the ability to comprehend the huge amounts of information that surround us on a day-to-day basis. Um, I was looking at some numbers today that said about 49% of U.S. adults can't read beyond an eighth-grade level. And you see, if you can't read, first of all, how would you even apply for public assistance? How would you fill out a FAFSA form? How can you serve, how can a parent serve as a navigator for their child through the public school system. So uh, reading is just just totally so crucial. I mean, I can't envision not being able to sound out words. In fact, my love of literacy happened inadvertently. I remember it quite clearly. I was about five or six years old, and my dad used to get the Sunday paper and he'd get in that naugahyde orange vinyl <laughs> recliner and stretch out with that paper. And one day I noticed a section of it was really pretty. I'm like, oh, I asked for that. It was the comic section, obviously, and I spread it out on the floor and got down on my knees with both hands on the floor, and I'm like totally into this paper. And then I saw a cartoon that really caught my attention, and I got frustrated because I saw these things above the characters' heads, and I couldn't read what they were saying, and I cried. So my dad came down there with me and helped me sound out the words, and I was able to find out what the little bear was saying to the big bear, Hmm. Yogi and Boo Boo, right? (laughs) (laughs) And... um, At that moment, I came to realize, wow, now I know. So that means if I can read all of these words that I see everywhere, I can know everything. And that is when my mind just came alight. You know, um, so reading is is just so crucial. I've been in many homes, uh, especially black homes in the South, where the only book in that whole household was the Bible. Mm Mm-hmm. I can remember going to visit some relatives of a family member, and there's not a lot to do where they were living. And I was bored to death, so I got up and I tried to find something in the house to read. I'm looking for magazines. I'm looking for anything. And there was nothing. So um, literacy is totally crucial. Had I not had the love of learning and reading and writing, I could very well still be in that poverty situation. Mm-hmm. And so I stressed it to my children as they grew up. I had, we all had favorite books that we could laugh about and talk about to this day. And in my book, A Day at the Fair, One Woman's Welfare Passage, I describe many of the scenes that we're talking about. And one of them talks about how Uh, My favorite books that I read with my son was a series of books called Richard Scary and Busy Town. And it's a book that's just full of illustrations with all kind of transportation and machines and characters, and and we just love that. And to this day, my daughter and I, we, we could laugh about Lily's purple plastic purse, you know. So growing up, and giving your children a love of learning is probably the greatest gift that you can give them beyond any material thing. And even today, I still serve as a volunteer. I read in public schools in uh, two nearby um, cities once a month. And I bring the characters to life using my voice. And I think it's important for the children to see that someone besides their teacher has shown them how much fun and how important and how vibrant one can be in reading and learning. So I'll never let go of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to right now give a shout-out to my main man, 50 Grand, Clarence Capers, who was my grandfather. And as you were telling that story, it made me think of Sunday when he was reading the paper, and I would sit next to him, and after he finished the section, 
I'm like, well, let me get that section. And I thought it was pissing them off, <laughs> but it really wasn't. It was, it, it was a really good um, binding, uh, a bonding scenario. Totally missed that guy. Um, and as you were talking about, and my mom used to take us, we used to walk across town to the library. And I'm just thinking, what do you do? I love that you volunteer at the public schools, but, you know, at 2018, everything's digital. So we have digital books, audio books. How else, are, how else would you suggest parents to um, bond with their children in the form of reading? By tying in, that's where family literacy comes in, by tying in everyday things to reading. Um, maybe, for example, one of the examples I like to give is taking a, a, some post-it notes and a Sharpie and labeling everything in a room and sticking a post-it note to it. What a sight that is when you're done. Mm-hmm. You know, just yeah. basic things. Um, uh, getting together in the kitchen to uh, bake a recipe, having someone read out, having another child measure. You know, there's so many basic things that you can do. And um, I also do a presentation called Building a Family Legacy, Building a Legacy of Learning, where I talk about and share low-budget or no-budget activities that families can do and uh, to promote literacy as part of daily routine because in actuality that's how you and I use it. Mm-hmm. and how to build a library on little or no money at all to have mm-hmm. a library in the home. Um, I must say that with the post-it notes, that is huge. And I remember my, one of my sisters, when she moved overseas, she used the post-it notes all the time just to pick up another language, and it was easier for her to pick up a language just by constantly seeing these different words. So yes. It, yes. it works, just not in your native yes. language. Mm-hmm. I do want to ask you. I do want to ask you about a, a historical question. So uh, there's a saying that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so historically, the South has been uh, lagging, let's say, for lack of a better term, for from the rest of the country. Uh, David always talks about pain body, and when you said that in a lot of homes in the South, the only thing that was there was the Bible, and from a history lesson, that was used as a control mechanism to keep people online. Uh, I wanted to get your take on um, family literacy, black homes in the South only having the Bible in 2018. That's, that's unimaginable for me. Now, I don't, totally, I don't disregard the Bible, uh, but I do consider it one of many available, quote-unquote, holy books. However, no matter what we believe in, we have physical bodies and we have to exist on a physical plane. And so for that reason, it behooves us to be totally aware and to take in knowledge as it relates to how best we can exist on a physical plane, not to so much have more belief in this thing, this pie in the sky that will take place when we make the transition, but that we are put here by the Creator with all these wonderful offerings, whether it's nature or diversity among peoples. And those are two perfect examples of something that we could come to know so much about. If we read, we could learn about other people's. We could gain a underst- more understanding about nature. And so, um, yes, uh, to, to see that even if the previous generation held that as the one and only book, surely they have to want, in wanting more for their own children, they have to be willing to know what they don't know but not want to have their children follow suit. I mean, most parents want their children to have more than what they had, and there's no greater means for bringing that about than promoting lifelong learning. We know also that 
of that particular generation that tends to only have that book, many of them never even finished school. And we also know that many of them want or insist that that next generation, their offspring, does finish school. But a lot of support really needs to come from home. And if indeed we do provide our children by example, that's another reason why we need to be not just talking the talk, but actually having our children see us take time to read because they will envision that, wow, if mom spends that much time doing it, it must be something to it. (laughs) And for those parents who cannot read, there's a solution for that. There are family literacy centers, and family literacy has the goal of seeing to it that everyone in the household can participate in reading and learning and comprehending information. And they actually conduct activities at their centers that promote families doing that, that just because someone is of a certain age does not mean that they cannot learn to read. If they have that desire to do so, they can. And family literacy centers have all available resources, can also provide different means uh, of promoting and supporting literacy in the home. So if a person wants to say, well, I need 50-something years old and, or I'm 30-something or 40-something years old and I can't read, how can I help my child not be like me um, and not be so limited? Um, and the way they can do that is to take it upon themselves, visit your local public library, uh, inquire at your nearby public schools. Um, there, there are people there who, who are as dedicated in the work of promoting and assisting individuals who want to learn to read as I am dedicated to the work I'm doing. Absolutely. Made me think of the uh, Denzel Washington movie with Viola Davis where at the end, he, you know, you, you realize, oh, spoiler alert, <laughs> but those that didn't <laughs> see the movie, Denzel couldn't read. And so it was just hampering his life. You know, he wanted to do so much for his child and he was harder on him because he couldn't read. Yeah, see, people people have, excuse me, I don't mean to cut you off, but people are really uncanny at hiding it. Yeah. You see it time and time again. I forgot my glasses today, honey. Can you read this for me? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Pamela, as you talk about all this, it it makes me um, think of my mother and her sister. They were, you know, they were born in Detroit. And in the 40s, and fortunately for them, um, their mother, my grandmother, all her brothers and sisters pretty much all went to college and got degrees, which was a pretty incredible thing back in the 30s and 40s. And um, my grandmother would read. She insisted that my mother and her sister knew how to read, so she would read to them daily and have them read in the newspapers and stuff. It was super important. And then when they were about, I think, eight, eight and nine, they moved to California, and where they went to school was predominantly white. I think, as a matter of fact, my mom said that they had like an assembly to announce they had two black students that were going to be joining the school. Wow. I know. So she said, oh, you know, all the students didn't treat them bad or anything, but what she said was they were, the education system in Detroit at, this t- at the time where my mom you know, was born and raised for the first like eight years was really good. So when they went out to California, they were ahead. They had to put them up like three times because all the information wow. that they learned, they already knew. But on top of that, they could read like adults. So yeah. you know, times when the teacher asked someone to stand up and read, the first time my mom did it, she just read confluently, and everyone in the room just gasped like they couldn't believe <laughs> that this little white girl was sitting there and could read like that fluent like an adult. It just blew them That's away, right. her, and, her and her sister. And so, you know, to this day, my mom says, I'm so glad, you know, Grandma taught, you know, taught us how to, how to read at an early age, and she insisted, and every day she read with us. 
because she knew you know, how important that was. Even though my mom and her sister probably didn't realize at that time, but, you know, she can look back now and see the importance of learning how to read at a very young age and understanding, you know, what you are reading and comprehending it. Yes. I mean, I'm, okay, and when I'm talking on literacy, one of the points I like to make, I pull up this this little cartoon of it's illustrating the various ages, quote unquote, ages of mankind. You know, you had the Iron Age where they learned how to shape metal into swords and what have you, and you had the Stone Age where if you couldn't make it like Fred Flintstone, you weren't going to survive. Well, people, we're in the Information Age, and if you can't master the tools of information, there yeah. is no place for you. Yeah. When, I'm, when I'm reading to the children in the public schools, before I leave, I always tell them that anything that they want to know about, to do, or to be, they can find out by reading in a book. And then I give them my example, which is my son. When he was about eight or nine years old, he had this infatuation with astronauts. And then maybe by 10, it changed. He was no longer so much into outer space as he was aviation. And I noticed this. So when I saw him make the switch, I started buying every book I could find on aviation, the history of aviation, um, Jane's Book of Planes, old FAA pilot flight manuals, um, Tuskegee Airmen. I built this library for my son, and that was whoa, 70, 27 years ago. Today my son is FAA certified mechanic to work on everything from single-engine Cessnas to the biggest jumbo jets, and he just purchased and fully restored his own second airplane. Wow. So what I try to tell parents is, as parents, it's kind of up to us to pay attention to what our children's inclinations are because if we notice that and we support and nurture that, there's no telling what that is that that child in this particular incarnation is here to live out. And the, the thing that happened with my son was just unbelievable. As a teen, when other boys were concerned about being cool, my son would be in his room. I kid you not. I, one of the sounds I miss of him not being home anymore is there's no one down at the end of the hall, and I hear keyboard ticking and foot stomping because my son bought Microsoft Flight Simulator back in the day, and he got every airport scene and everything, and he'd darken that room and have those airplane instrument gauges on that monitor, and that is how he taught himself how to fly. Wow. I love it. So it, that's what I try to stress to parents. Pay attention to what your child likes. If you want to get them books, let them pick them. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, Pamela, so it's the beginning of, of November, and we are Halloween's past, and we're officially into holiday season. And most people would do the soup kitchen for Thanksgiving, and it's kind of a check mark of, yes, I've done my community service, and I've uh-huh. done my part. What uh-huh. made you go above and beyond that to become not only a literacy advocate but a poverty advocate? My, my personal lived experience with poverty, um, you see, and I feel I'm qualified to do so because, you see, when I lived my cushy middle-class lifestyle, and how cushy was it? I lived in the restored historical section of Savannah, Georgia, in a two-story, fully restored Victorian home that overlooked a park that is about 20 blocks long, complete with private garden of wisteria. And all 
the Spanish wish be moss hanging off the trees and everything was good and food, abundance, music, entertaining friends and family, you name it. And then all of a sudden, find myself in a matter of a week living in the conditions that I described to you, gentlemen. The reason being my partner suffered with post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of having gone to Vietnam. And he would go into these violent fits of rage. And I had to make a decision to stay, enjoy the material comfort, or to go to protect my and my children's safety. And mind you, I loved him dearly. I never, ever found anyone with such a capacity of sensitivity. He was talented. He was so interesting. On his good days, he was everything to me and my children. But on his bad days, it, it was just scary. So I had no choice but to leave. And in doing so, that is how I ended up about four hours away, living in these crime-ridden, drug-infested neighborhoods in a box of roaches. And so I feel qualified as a poverty advocate because when I meet with congressional members to tell my story in support of anti-poverty programs, I feel qualified because, you know, I tell them, I used to have the same attitude about the safety net that you did, because I did. When I was living comfortable and I just heard a rumor about welfare, I'm like, oh, lazy, nonproductive, blah, blah, freeloaders. I had all of that. I didn't even know anybody on welfare, but I was making those judgments. And then fate knocked at my door and after living on the streets and in a moving truck and staying in the home of a stranger and everything, I realized that the only choice I had next to nothing was for me to swallow my pride and go apply for welfare. So you see, I have both perspectives. I know what it was like to be comfortable and cozy and not have a care in the world except maybe what color the drapes are going to be. And then I have the downtrodden experience of living in a place with no heat, no air. And this was in Florida, mind you, and the bedrooms were upstairs. So try sleeping in a bedroom (laughs) upstairs in Florida with no AC, with one window in the front and one window in the back. I used to, as I mentioned in my book, on some of those days, I was the crayons left behind in a hot car. That's how bad it was. So I feel qualified as a poverty advocate because I have lived experience. I know what it's like to be judgmental when everything is good and cozy in your world and to have it taken away and reduce you down to nothing on a physical level. And then I also – I'm sorry? No, you had said another good point. Uh, we, We had covered it maybe two or three podcasts ago about the uh, black community. Uh, We were talking about Taraji uh, Henson, and she was on Late Night, and she had just started this fund um, because she was talking in in honor for her father. Her father had transitioned, but before he transitioned, he had gone through the same scenario as your spouse with the post-traumatic stress disorder from Vietnam, and my dad kind of went through the same thing. And it was kind of – it was one thing that our community didn't really talk about until this generation recently. So it was just more of people feeling isolated or by themselves, whereas there was, if there was a collective outreach, I think people would have transitioned a lot better, and I think that's happening today. Yes, yes. Well, you know, one thing I always like to clarify is that as a poverty advocate, anti-poverty I am not on any one side. I am not saying that persons should be given some unlimited amount of money and remain in the system for an unlimited amount of time. Nor am I saying that, okay, government, do away with those programs. You see, because people always like to come up with the, well, there's all these people who abuse it. Actually, statistically, it's been shown that's a whopping 2%. Mm. 
And my response to the abuse question, because I had to come up with a 4-0 answer because I hear it all the time, is you tell me what is it that mankind has access to that is not subject to abuse. You Mm -hmm. have domestic abuse. You have drug and alcohol abuse. You have abuse of power. So now, all of because this is some taxpayer-paid program that's being provided to persons who are struggling to put food on their tables or have a roof over their head, do you think it's supposed to have some magic force field around it that will enable it to not be abused? Come on, let's be for real. So I'm not on either side, but... If resources was no option, I would personally take on the task of revamping, not reforming, because when they say reform now, it's only associated with let's cut it. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about revamping the program and turning it into something that initiates self-sustainability from day one of completing the application and gives the person a track of success, of something they can hope to accomplish before that three- to five-year period or whatever it is comes out so that they can see that when it's all over, they're going to be better off. And you see, Mm -hmm. that's another reason why I embarked upon the motivational speaking because I feel like this. All the people who get this formal motivational, emotional intelligence and all the other professional buzzword type things, they're they're always managers and supervisors and all of that. So who needs motivation more than a person who is down on their luck? So because I've been there, I feel that I, I qualify to speak on what that's like and to share with them personal tools or personal strategies to hang in there and keep scratching the dead dirt until something comes up out of it. Mm-hmm. So I always like to clarify that I'm not on either side. I'm only on the side of doing what's right. I'm not saying that abuse doesn't exist or happen, and I'm not saying let's do away with the programs, but I am saying it needs to change. It needs to be more pliable, flexible, more goal-oriented, because when you are down and out and you're broken and lost like that, You've lost something already, and so I think there should be training programs. I have I have this whole idea that if I had the time, I would write this paper and this report on how to apply it and turn it into something that can be a reward rather than infinite. And then people don't realize why one of the reasons why people stay on the system is the cliff effect. The cliff effect is... When you are working towards independence, as I did, and you take each individual step, then at some point you have to know for a fact before you jump out of the system that you are now going to be able to afford A, child care, B, health insurance, C, decent housing, And come on, let's face it, with the way wealth inequality continues to blossom, especially in this last few years, how do you think anyone making $7.25 an hour can do that? It's not going to happen. So you have to be able to make that decision. If you read my book, you'll see where I went back and forth and back and forth and worried about, can I really get out of it now? Do I think I can step out on my own and handle paying for daycare, paying full 100% of my own rent, buying my own groceries at the rate of inflation, providing transportation, affording medical care? That's a whole lot to be trying to do with $7.25 an hour. You're yeah. here. So that's why some people are staying there because when they get to that cliff, they can see it, but I can't jump yet. 
I don't have a parachute. I'm not capable of making sure that I can provide all of that. I mean, that's a commitment. If I took my baby out of daycare for some piddly little job, I've hurt us more than anything else. So a lot of people probably, I can't speak for everyone, but I can only speak from my experience, I could not do that until I was absolutely positively sure that my income resulting of my newly born career in journalism was going to make that type of independence possible. So if we could revamp a program that puts that as what's at the end of the tunnel and people can see it, you could give people something to strive for, but otherwise they're taking a risk. So my overall attitude about the system, again, I'm not on either side. I'm not saying everybody should stay on it indefinitely, and I'm not saying the government should take it away. But it needs to be a road. It needs to have a track. It needs to have something. Because you see, one person's idea of success is different than another's. So you have to define what will that look like. And then maybe government could see it more as an investment. But uh, yeah, the right. way it is, the way it is now, with the rules different from state to state, and all of that, it, it's a mess. Yeah, yeah. You're also touching into the the conversation over civitism. So, from an economical standpoint, there, the jails are anticipating the the person to go back in the jail or have that revolving door yeah. because once they once they get out, they're just like like you said that cliff. There's no way I can handle this. I might as well just yeah. go back and get my three hots in a cot. Yeah, yeah you know. So. It made me think of, uh, I don't know if you know about him, but uh, Curtis Wall Street Carroll. Are you familiar with him? No, I'm not. So Curtis Wall Street Carroll, he was big. He did a, um, I'll send it to you afterwards, but he did a huge TED Talk last year. He was a gangbanger in, I think he's in Northern California, and he didn't know how to read. He got arrested when he was really young, you know, familiar story. Uh, he, mm-hmm. was, he was doing the trafficking. But while he was in jail, I think he was in there, he was, when he had first gone in, I think he had a violent crime. And so he was supposed to be in there for 20-plus years. When he had gone in as a teenager, he couldn't read, he, he couldn't write. He taught himself to read, but he also taught himself how to trade stocks. And so that's mm-hmm. why he was on TED Talks because, you know, he became financially literate. And yes. he was also able to read the law books of how he got incarcerated and was able to shave time off of his sentence. See? Yes, yes. But, you know, I used to visit uh, a maximum security prison, and the most, it was the most heart, one of the most heart-wrenching things I've ever faced because so many of the young black men, old black men, men, period, that were in there had some epiphany once they were there. Of course, you hear it all the time. Oh, I converted to Islam or I found Jesus, blah, 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 and so on. And so what essentially I observed is that when they have the distractions that were on the outside removed, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they come to realize their essence of who and what they are and can be. And so I want them to learn to start focusing on that before it comes to that. I saw artists who just were astounding. I saw how they're uh, not being able to have certain things or supplies. They were some of the most exceptional people at improvising. I have one example I'd like to give you. I was invited and asked to come up initially as a speaker during a graduation ceremony of a black history group within the prison. And they wanted to use kente stoles, you know, the sashes of the embroidered Mm -hmm. African threads and all of that. But, of course, they weren't allowed to have those because they could be used for strangling somebody or what have you. I kid you not, these brothers took pieces of eight and a half by 11 paper, cut them the exact width of a kente stole, connected them with tape to make the length 
of the kente stole. And then, here's the remarkable part, they meticulously pen and inked every single stitch on that sash of paper. And it looked so authentic. It was unbelievable. That's a great story. They, they made those kente sashes out of paper mm-hmm. and pen and ink. Earlier in the podcast, you were talking about uh, literacy and you were talking about uh, people were unfamiliar with FAFSA and that was, you know, getting financial aid for uh, for college and things like that. I'd like yes. for you to talk about literacy with uh, historically underutilized businesses. I understand you're a part of SWAM, which is in in Virginia. They have different names in different states, but it's the small yes, women and minority-owned business. How how were you able to get that designation, and how could people learn more about that? That uh, once they learn how uh, to read, their yes, they can contact their state's small business development corporation, sometimes called SBDC, and what they are, as it, as the name entails, they provide. Um, foundational information to small businesses. And I was at an event where uh, that information from the SBDC was presented, and one of the things they went on to talk about was how small businesses could qualify as SWAMs, which stands for Small Women and Minority Businesses, in which you own at least 51% of the company, as well as a micro-business, which is super small, and then you have enterprise businesses. So uh, I am a SWAM, but there are other um, uh, subsets of this uh, program as well. And it just took two full-day sessions for me to achieve that certification. So if people would go to their state, look up their Small Business Development Council, or if you can't find that, if you contact your local SCORE office, which is another acronym that has something to do with retired executives who serve as mentors for businesses, someone can help you find your local SBDC and find out what your state's name is for the program that certifies small women and minority businesses. And the reason why the certification is valuable, they have the most remarkable database set up, and most states are required to use a certain number of SWAM or uh, 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 DBEs and micro-businesses for their work. And so when you become certified, you go into this database and you're provided these occupational codes so that those procurement people from different companies or local and state governments can go in search of you based upon that code if they have a need for, let's say, public speaker. They can type in whatever those five or six digits is, and they will see a listing of all of those public speakers who are designated as SWAMs in this database. And then there's some other information there that enables them to look at you. There's a link to my website and maybe how many years I've been in the business. And I have more than one code because I also serve some other uh, uh, have some other small business ventures. But, yes, they can contact their state, look for your SBDC. If you can't find that, most states have a SCORE office, S-C-O-R-E, and they can perhaps guide you. And um, it, the process itself, like I said, took two days and involved paperwork that most of us already have on hand. Hopefully you have a business license, you've opened a business bank account or will, can show them that you've made some investment in the business, uh, you know, have some skin on the table, and um, pass W-2 form, uh, pass uh, income tax return. So there's nothing complicated about it at all. I went one day to learn about the whole thing and what it was about. I went the next day to actually fill out and submit the uh, forms and necessary paperwork, and I believe it takes 90 days before you get that email that says, you made it, here's your certification number, you're now in our system. 
No, I wanted to thank you for sharing that. I wanted to highlight it because if people listen to this now, which is November, and you said it takes a couple of months to get approval going through whatever process, they don't have to wait until January to start their New Year's resolution. Oh, yeah, for real, for real. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that puppeteering thing just drives me crazy, uh, which takes me back to your previous question about why I have decided to be a poverty advocate. One of the reasons is, in fact, I just had a recent letter to the editor published in two papers here that reminded people that, listen, homeless people are hungry need medical care and shelter all year round. It is not a seasonal problem. Absolutely, absolutely. And you just you just highlighted how the world can open up to you just based off of literacy and things that yes. we take for we take for granted. Others have no idea about, and that's why I wanted you to highlight the small business too. Because, and I noticed this in college that a lot of scholarships and a lot of funding are never even taken advantage of because people aren't accessing it. Yes, I've heard of that. Well, I can assure you, like I said, when I first started out, I was looking for everything that I could find. And, of course, there was a lot more available back in those days. And let me just add a real quick thing. When I was going through my little stint with poverty, one of the things that made it most difficult, and, again, we're talking 1980s, to 1986. You know what had happened in our communities back then that made it so awful? The crack cocaine sweep. And the places that were kind of just cool, like I was into roller skating and I'd go out on the basketball courts when the brothers weren't out there playing and skate and there were other places that I could go and just kind of chill. Well, those places became some of the most dangerous places you could not want to be all because of crack cocaine, and my neighborhood was one of them. Yeah, it's funny now, 2018, you have TV shows like uh, Cedric the Entertainer about the neighbors, so that kind of opened the the scenery, if you will, to regentrification. Oh, yes. And most people wouldn't know that without the literacy, so I think it always goes back to literacy. It does. uh, What would you say to someone, because we're at at the top of the hour, and I'm, I'm going to give you time to highlight your book and where they can get in touch with you, but what would you say to that one person that, you know, they, they can't read, but they somebody had given them this podcast and they're listening to it, and they may be in a situation that they would consider dire. How would they pull themselves out of that situation? Well, I would suggest that they find, if it's an immediate situation, find someone who does have the literacy skills enough to read and guide you through the document and perhaps paraphrase what it is that the document is saying. Uh, Don't sign anything that you don't have a clear understanding of. And then if you've solved your immediate emergency, then do reach out. As I mentioned, contact your local public library or maybe your even public school and find out where your nearby family literacy center is because there are people who have dedicated themselves to helping you expand your horizons. And let me assure you that once you do so and you find yourself able to read, you won't want to stop reading, and your whole world will open wide up. Nice, nice. And so where can they get a day affair, and how can they get in touch with you for speaking engagements and everything else? I have a website um, that they can see speaking demos, uh, fill out a contact form, and I'll be revising it soon to put a place for an emailing list. I do have an email list. My website is Pamela, that's P-A-M like in Mary, E-L-A-M Covington, C-O-V-I-N-G, T like in Tom, O-N, Pamela M. Covington.com is my website. And my email is the same. It's Pamela at Pamela M. Covington.com. You can find A Day at the Fair, One Woman's Welfare Passage, is available on Amazon as both a paperback and an ebook and should be available as an audiobook sometime in 2019. 
In addition, I'm also working on another book called Inspiration for Everyday People, a self-empowerment workbook, which will also be out sometime in 2019. Fantastic. You have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I'm David. And Pamela, it was a pleasure speaking with you and learning more about you and, and becoming an advocate, and we'd love to stay in touch. Thank you, and thank you for the invite. I really enjoyed being on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for checking out another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast. Please check us out on our website at intrinsicmotivation.life where you can click on the speak pipe button and leave any suggestions for a future podcast that you'd like us to cover. Also check us out on our social media sites. We have a YouTube channel, Facebook page, iTunes podcast, in addition to Stitcher and Google Play, all under Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. Check you out next time. Have a great day.